First Timothy chapter six. End is in sight here. As you open, let me say this: the Bible makes it clear that without Christ, no matter who you are, that you are dead in your sin. Hopefully that's not new information for you. God wants us to know, and he tells us in his word over and over, all have sinned, all fall short of his standard. No one is good enough. No one is righteous enough. In fact, God says not only is man not good enough, he's not even good at all. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And not much has changed. Romans chapter 3 says the same. No one's good. No one seeks after God. No one's even close. Through the Bible, we learn that all of us are completely sinful and God is entirely holy. Couldn't be at more opposite ends of the scale when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to holiness. The Bible begins with the story of how sin came into being and how sin separates all of us from God. And as you know, that creates a huge problem for you and for me because God created us uniquely. He created us to live forever. And so if our sin separates us from him, then where do we live forever if it's not with him? So the gospel teaches us that we deserve judgment and we deserve God's wrath because of our sin. We deserve to be separated from him forever in a place the Bible calls hell. And it's a horrible place for many reasons, but by far the worst reason that we don't want to be there, that we don't want to live there forever is because that's a place where God will not be. So in the gospel, we learn that man is sinful and God is holy and our sin creates a huge problem, but God has a bigger plan. Through his son, Jesus Christ, man can be forgiven. You and I can be restored. You and I can be adopted back into God's family. And so God sent his son to die on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him, all who would put their trust in him as the one who's paid for their sin. This trust and this belief, it also requires a turning away from sin. Requires a new direction for life. So not only are we to pray to God and confess our sinfulness and ask for forgiveness, but true salvation is connected to a whole new way of living. We're to no longer desire that sinful lifestyle, wanting to stop following sin and to stop following that sinful temptation that's in all of us, but rather we want to follow the Lord Jesus instead. True salvation leads to that. We want to live 
the way that Jesus wants us to live. Those new desires, those are his desires for us and living God's way is the best thing that we could ever do. If you believe in the gospel, believe that Jesus did die for your sin, that he did rise three days later, proving that he not only paid for sin, but that he had beaten death, and you now have a whole new way of life, sin, no longer your master. Rather, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is your master. If you are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you are a new creation. Psalm 51.10 would say that, that God has created in you a new heart, a clean heart. And he's renewed a right spirit within you. Ephesians 2.10, another one of my favorite verses, would say this about you. If you truly believe in the gospel and you truly want to leave your sin behind, it would say that you are now God's masterpiece. You are his workmanship, created to live a new way, created now to live his way. As we get back into our text here in 1 Timothy, we have a section before us about slaves and masters. And although there is a lot that we could learn about that specific relationship, there is much more to learn about how God calls Christians to live with one another. I don't have to stress this point to you. By the time you hit junior high, you know relationships aren't always the easiest thing to maintain. Friendships and relationships with family, relationships with your parents, with your siblings, all those relationships with with teammates and classmates and friends in the neighborhood and friends at church, all of those relationships aren't always easy to maintain, but what we learn through the Bible is that all of those relationships are a unique opportunity for the Christian. You would say, well, what opportunity is that? What do you mean? What, What am I supposed to do in those relationships? Well, you get to put on display what Christ has done in your life. God absolutely cares about the way that you live, but there is one reason that the Bible argues for over and over, and that is the testimony of your life. God cares about the way you live. He cares about the way that you interact with others because of the testimony of your life. The way you live is a testimony for the unbelieving world. It's Let me say it this way. Your life is evidence of the power of the gospel. Power to give life where there was once only death. Your life can be proof of the grace of the gospel to make a new creation and fill someone with a brand new heart that wants to live for righteousness instead of wickedness. That's what I mean by testimony. It's evidence. It's proof of what Christ has done in you. Your life, again, is meant to be a testimony. If you're a Christian, it's meant to be a testimony of the work of Christ. We've seen this already in 1 Timothy. In chapter 5, verse 14, the younger widows, they needed to re-engage 
with life so that they don't live in a way that would give the enemies of God an opportunity to slander. If they didn't live the right way, there was a risk that they might do something to damage their reputation, and not just as women, but as Christian women, that they might damage the testimony of of all Christians, and especially the name of Christ. And this principle is all over the Bible. We looked at 2 Samuel 11 just a few Wednesday nights ago as, as God dealt with David and his sin. We read this in 2 Samuel twelve fourteen. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David's sin ruined his testimony. That was one of the, that was one of the harshest comments that the prophet Nathan said to David. God using Nathan to expose his sin. He had to hear those words. My sin has given the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme. A reason for those enemies or those who don't know God to sort of celebrate their sinful way of living. To be able to say, see, God actually isn't all that good. He isn't all that great. Look at what you did. He doesn't actually have the power to to save or restore or make new. Our testimony is so important. And even as we look this morning at just this one really specific relationship, I want us to learn from it. Let's learn to apply this to all our relationships. Apply it to our entire lives. Our text this morning is a great lesson for Christians and how to live with others in a way that protects your testimony, protects that evidence that your life would be the right evidence and proof of what Christ has truly done. Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we know that verse so well. But the very next verse says, Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. We're to live in a way that honors God and gives glory to the Lord, especially so that we don't ruin our testimony. Our big idea this morning is simple, and it's borrowed right from 1 Corinthians 10. Christians should live with others in a way that glorifies God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's zoom in and and just think about this kind of specific relationship first. And then I kind of want to peel back and see how we might learn from these principles in all of our relationships. So zooming in again, specific here, slaves and masters and slavery. It's kind of a strange word for us. 
kind of makes us think of, you know, maybe not the best image because of our own country's history. And as we try to understand the differences between what we know of slavery from our recent past, our recent history, we try to understand that versus what's happening in the Bible, there are numerous differences. I read and read and read and read about slavery and masters, and there is so much. But let me just give you the most important piece for us this morning is those that help us know that this type of relationship was very, very common. Out of everything we could talk about, that's the most important. Slavery, slaves, and masters was such a common thing. Many in the church would have been slaves. Many in this little church would know precisely what Paul was talking about. They were either currently or had been slaves at one point. So it isn't a small thing that Paul speaks to here. This is a, a really big thing. It's, it's common. Those words slave and master, those would have caused many of the ears in that church to really tune in. It's like saying boys and girls. It's just, it's such a common thing for all those here. Roman slavery was common. It was more of a lifestyle, more of an opportunity for employment and for well-being. That's, that's helpful to know. It wasn't about race or social status. It was far more civilized. Most slaves were given citizenship They used their position to better their lives significantly. During the the time this was written, being a slave was so much more different than what we might think about when we read our history books. This was not like that. But how civilized it was really isn't the point. The reason that this is the topic for Paul is because this relationship was so very common. The church in Ephesus was filled with people in this exact type of relationship. So Paul had written to the church in Ephesus just a few years prior. It's the book of Ephesians. And there he gives a massive explanation of of how these two people are supposed to work together, slaves and and masters, how they can think right about each other, how they can walk wisely, how they can be Christians desiring to walk in the Spirit. And he gives a great treatment on that, and they needed instruction, obviously because they weren't doing it very well. And now, just a few years later, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and not much has changed except perhaps more people coming to saving faith. And just think what new truths they would have heard in the gospel. There's no partiality with God. God doesn't think of us that way. That's what they would have heard. There's all are the same. It didn't matter if you were a Jew or not. It didn't matter if you were a woman or a man. It didn't matter if you were a slave or a master. It didn't matter if you were, you know, socially high up or really, really low. That was one of the most incredible truths of the gospel. God sees everyone the same. An incredible unifier. Galatians 3.25 
It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Listen, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that new reality although incredibly freeing and encouraging and unifying, it would have also been a perfect recipe for disaster and for these believers to live with each other in a way that would ruin their testimony. That's why Paul writes again. It's believed that many of these Christians came from households with non-Christian masters. For some, they're sitting in that same little church in someone's house with their master, and they're both believers, both children of God, both saved and redeemed and renewed, new creations because of the gospel. So how does this work? How do I think about this person now? Paul wanted to make sure that they were living exemplary lives in those relationships with One another, just as God wants the same for you and for me, we're to live in a way that the church's reputation and the gospel's reputation and the Lord's reputation would not be hindered, would not be looked down on, but rather be more attractive because of the way that we deal with each other. Paul gives this first thought, and I want us to see it from verse 1, and we'll call it this, honor all in authority. How can those on the outside world be more attracted, more interested in the gospel because of the way that we live? It starts here, honor all in authority. Verse 1, in comparison to verse 2, seems to point to this principle that Paul's talking about masters who are unbelievers, but it's also all who are in Authority. We can learn that it's important to honor those who are in authority over our lives, regardless of whether or not they're believers. Just like the true widows are to be shown honor in chapter 5, verse 3, and the hardworking elders are to be shown double honor in verse 17 of chapter 5. Now, verse 1 of chapter 6 makes clear that masters, too, are to be shown honor, and all of them, no matter what. seems that some of those slaves who had become believers maybe began to think they didn't need to concern themselves uh, with working hard any longer, that their masters were not worthy of a hard day's work, that they weren't worthy of honor because they were not believers, As we compare that to what Paul says in verse 2, it seems that it has something to do with that. But even if not, we can learn that anyone in authority is worthy of honor. I once knew a young teenager who was under the impression that she no longer needed to honor and obey her parents because they were not believers. She had become a Christian and her parents were not believers and she thought that meant I I no longer need to honor them, obey them. She stopped listening to their advice. 
She thought that her identity in Christ sort of put her in a different category, a different league, if you will. I don't need to listen to them because they're not Christians. Many believers, especially, listen, you guys, especially new ones, don't always know how to relate to others in authority, especially when that person in authority is an unbeliever. Paul makes this crystal clear just like you would an employer, just like you would anyone in authority over your life, if your testimony is to be what it's meant to be, you show them honor. The new identity in Christ can cause confusion. It can cause someone to forget the basics of how God calls us to love one another as he loves us. We can forget how he calls us to live in unity with each other how we're commanded to serve each other, how we're commanded to prefer one another, as we read in Philippians 2 this morning. And that's going to be true in every relationship. It's going to be true in the family with parents and children. It's going to be true in a marriage between a husband and a wife. It's going to be true in the workplace between a boss and a worker. For the Christian, our behavior with others, and get this, it's meant to be a testimony, a reflection of the gospel. And when we honor those who are worthy of honor, the gospel becomes more attractive. When we don't honor those that we should, it's a bad reflection of who God is and what he can do. I know for a fact that that young lady wishes her testimony with her parents was a little bit better. I I know she wishes that she would have honored her parents better than she did. And it's not because of the trouble, but it's because of her testimony of the gospel. It's because of the sake of the gospel that she wishes her honor for her parents was better than it was. Here in Ephesus, we have a, a similar situation. It's, it's not a bunch of Christian teens disobeying their unbelieving parents Rather, it's a significant amount of unbelieving masters who now have slaves professing to be Christians, but who are also disrespectful when they should have been even more honoring than they used to be. They're, they're lazier all of a sudden when they should have been even better workers because of what Christ has done in their life. They're agents of, of trouble when they should have been representing the peace of God instead. It doesn't have to be isolated to work. That's the point I want us to zoom out and see. I know that Paul's talking about that specific relationship, but we can apply this uh, principle to anyone in authority in our life, a parent, a teacher, a coach, a policeman, a pastor. This is what God's word wants us to learn. Every day, if you're a young Christian, you have a chance to show the watching world what you're really about. A chance to show those without Christ how he can transform a life. Guard your testimony by the way that you treat those who are in authority over you. 
because you don't want the watching world to roll their eyes and dismiss God and his gospel because of you. Jesus and the gospel should be far more attractive to the unbelieving world because of the way you work, but also the way you live with those who are in authority over your life. Show honor to all. And number two, verse two, gives us a little more clarity. Go above and beyond for the believer or the beloved. Go above and beyond for the believer. I actually am convinced this is the real issue for the believers here in Ephesus, Christian slaves and Christian masters. And you can think of the, the tension that would exist. Both now are, are equal. They are both children of God, both equal in God's sight. As we just read, there's neither slave nor master. So now you can imagine them thinking, well, if there's neither slave nor ma- master, why should I listen to you? Why do I have to listen to you? And not only because of what Paul's already said, but so much more here because of who this person is in Christ. Unfortunately, Christians can take advantage of one another, not always giving a fellow Christian our best because we know that other person is a Christian. We know that they might forgive us. They might show us grace. They might show us extra compassion because we're both believers They're going to be more understanding and kind, not because we deserve it, but because we both claim Christ. And that sort of laziness brings disgrace on the name of Jesus. And Paul flips this issue on its head and says, if that person's a believer, you ought to serve even more, even more all the better above and beyond for that person because of who they are in Christ Of course, that's true for the slave-master relationship here, but you guys, listen, this is so helpful for all our relationships. Knowing that that other person is a Christian doesn't mean I should downshift or be lazy or ignore them or basically just take advantage of their kindness because I know they're a Christian. Rather, I should give them my very best effort. My very best, I should want to go above and beyond in my opportunity to serve them, help them, love them, encourage them. Whatever I can do, I want to do it even more so because they're a Christian. This is no stranger. This is a fellow believer worthy of honor and worthy of my very best That attitude will ensure not only a good relationship with other believers, but we're still talking about the same thing. It has an evangelistic purpose. When the world that's lost in its sin sees the love that's displayed between a master and a slave or a parent and a child or a husband and a wife between friends and especially between fellow Christians, when they see that enhanced and elevated relationship that's overflowing with honor and the extra care and love, it's an opportunity for the gospel to spread. Because that unbeliever only knows those relationships to be lacking. 
their experience with those relationships without the love of Christ. They only know broken and difficult and painful relationships. A, A lack of honor. Everyone's on their own. No one ever going above and beyond. And Paul says, when you live this way, when you show the lost world what it looks like to serve a fellow believer, others will see it and say, I want that too. Paul's giving this church some incredibly helpful detail on this common relationship. But we take that principle and we need to apply it to all our relationships. If you're a Christian, you show others honor. You be loving and kind. You serve them by showing respect and a love that stems from the love that God has shown you. And all the more so if that person's a believer. When we live the way that we're supposed to live with others, it not only glorifies God, but getting back to where we started, it enhances our testimony for the gospel. It takes that proof, it takes that testimony that we are so anxious to show and it enhances it. I'll give Paul the last word. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Just a few verses later, he says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. Father, thank you for these rich truths. For those here this morning who remain resistant to your gospel and who are lost in their sin, I pray that you would help them to see their need for you. Lord, even in a a text like this, as we're talking about relationships, we're reminded of, of how difficult those relationships are without you. But I pray that you would help these young teens to see their need for your gospel. How that will help so much of their life. God, would you also be with those who are Christians to to love you and to live in a way that honors you and, and enhances their testimony for the gospel. That it would be proof of your goodness and your grace and that it would compel the lost to find you. Lord, I pray that that would be our prayer today and this week. Lord, as we interact with those around us who need you, God, that our testimony would be like a magnet for you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.